One of the difficult aspects about studying slavery is the sources we have often only reveal one perspective, the perspective of a white slave master. So we're often left trying to guess or figure out what the motive in each story is. I'm Brandon Dillard, and I'm the manager of historic interpretation at Monticello. I'm Holly Halinowski, and I'm a tour guide at Monticello. And you're listening to In the Course of Human Events. My name is Steve Light, and I am the manager of house tours at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. The story I want to talk about today is about an enslaved man named York who broke into Thomas Jefferson's private bedchamber. In 1798, Thomas Jefferson was serving uh, as the vice president of the United States. And for long portions of his year, he was living in Philadelphia, which at the time was still the, the U.S. capital. York was uh, 16 years old at the time, a field laborer, a position where his duties likely did not take him into the main house frequently at all. But on this occasion, York entered the house, which was probably empty at the time, and broke into Jefferson's bedchamber, which contained his bedroom, his office, what he called his cabinet, and uh, his library. We're talking about Jefferson's most personal protected spaces at Monticello. So the thing that I find interesting is that at Monticello, enslaved people live where they work. So the fields are going to be far away from the mountaintop and far away from the house proper. The fact that York makes his way to the house to enter into it and then be able to find a room, it makes me ask the question, where did he get the information? I think something to consider is the larger network of the enslaved community and how information may have been passed. York had apparently taken the screws out of the lock and before leaving, he tried to rearrange the lock so that no one would notice that the lock had been tampered with. And if you, you come to Monticello, you can see this lock. And it's something that clearly Jefferson put some thought into himself. The lock was connected by a wire system that went across the room, which enabled Jefferson to lock and unlock it. We're not exactly sure how, but from the other side of the room. So it's something that Jefferson thought about that represents kind of Jefferson, the gadget guy. Isaac Granger, in his memoirs, refers to Jefferson working on locks. This is a weird uh, thing that, that people during this time did. King George played with locks. King Louis played with locks. Wealthy Euro-American men, white men, are studying the world around them. So when Granger is referring to it, he's also shedding some light on a, a broader idea of the Enlightenment sort of giving us insight into how Jefferson falls into this larger culture of intellectualism. What I think is fascinating about this story is the way in which it sounds like York figured out how to manipulate this lock so that it looks like it wasn't even damaged. And that is fascinating. Because it means that he had to have looked at it and tinkered with it and thought about it. Or, to speak to Holly's point earlier, Maybe he didn't do it alone. York stole clothing. He took a book on traveling with horses. He took various other objects and trinkets, including a penknife, 
and he took a gun. Clothing. This could be used for warmth or to disguise oneself. The books, as well as some of the other things he took, York could have been using to sell. And then, of course, he steals a gun. And this could be used for self-defense. This could be used for hunting. But one of the things that crosses my mind is, was this break-in a step that York was taking towards trying to escape from slavery? You know, we have a lot of students who come visit. And one of the things that I hear a lot, and I'm curious, Holly, if you hear this too, kids who say things like, oh, I would, I would run. I would escape. Absolutely, I would run away. And do you have that conversation with them? I do. And I think it's very, very normal to react that way. Well, why didn't you fight? Why didn't you run? I would have. But then you ask a, maybe a deeper question. Well, would that be your response if you thought that your mother's life was threatened? Would that be your response if you knew that if you left, you were leaving your your younger siblings to possibly receive a punishment that you weren't there to receive? How does that change your answer? Uh, We don't have an account about this incident from York himself, but we do know that York's life was about to change. He had just been promised as a wedding gift just a few months before this break-in occurs at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Mariah Jefferson, married a man named John Wales Epps. And as part of that wedding, Jefferson provided a dowry, including enslaved people. Uh, Enslaved people were treated as property. Property could be given away as gifts. York, along with his mother, Judy Hicks, and his father, a man named King, And some of his brothers and sisters, but not all of them, were going to a new plantation. York had a few younger brothers that Jefferson employed at Monticello's Nailery, a shop making nails, which was quite profitable. And so those younger brothers were not included as part of the dowry. A change in ownership for any enslaved person was a moment where the reality of their powerlessness in this system was obvious. Frederick Douglass actually wrote about this as the the primary and most challenging aspect of slavery. It's not the physical punishment, it's the fear of separation. And so here we have in this story real insight into the most horrifying aspects of slavery. And yet we see this one young man, York, trying to navigate this system, trying to survive. And York is 16. He is He's a child by standards today, which is different than the world was 200 years ago, but the biology is the same as it is today. And that is to say that this is a young man who's living through his teenage years. And so not only that, but he's been brought up in this situation of continued exposure to trauma, both physical and psychological violence. And I think that the the bigger question is, can a person who is enslaved steal something? from someone who enslaves them. Like, what does that actually mean? Holly, what do you think? Like, talk to me about about your thoughts on that. I think context is everything. The idea of stealing something at surface level is wrong. But if somebody's stealing bread and it's to feed their family, do you look at it differently? 
right? And, and it, it begs the question, what is the theft? And so an act of material taking from someone who enslaves you, from someone who takes your life, I, I would question deeply how we can morally quantify that where there's such a gross imbalance of power. You know, we talk about this theft at Monticello, but I can't help but think I'm seeing the story as resistance at Monticello. I think the larger context of the story is really important here. York has a family, and I wonder, maybe he was trying to work for the freedom of someone else in his family, or multiple parts of his family. Maybe he wasn't acting alone in his own self-interest. Maybe it was an act of desperation for the whole family unit, and he was thinking more broadly about the people that he loved. So many of the stories that we tell at Monticello are actually stories of resistance in which enslaved people who were told that they were property managed to time and time again reaffirm their humanity. One of the interesting aspects of the story is that there is somebody who is in charge of watching after the house while Jefferson is away. And that individual is a man named Jupiter Evans. And Evans was also an enslaved person. Evans was born in 1743, the same year as Thomas Jefferson. He grew up as a childhood playmate of Thomas Jefferson. And as a young man, Evans was Jefferson's personal attendant. So Jupiter Evans is very closely connected to Thomas Jefferson. And when the family is away from Monticello, Evans is the individual charged with protecting the house, which is fascinating. Jupiter Evans is given a near impossible job, which is that he is asked to look over Jefferson's property while being Jefferson's property. And so what a very challenging position to be put in. I think that the idea that York was able to make it past the lock to be in the bedchamber to remove items and then put the lock back together and leave and have all of that happen as if there were no other members of the enslaved community around is very unlikely, particularly in the case of Jupiter Evans. It's not that he would have had to have been there to open the door for York, but maybe he just looked the other way. And that's a big maybe. That's a huge maybe. There are these conversations that we have to have about the types of personal relationships that exist between people who were enslaved and the people who enslaved them. Jupiter Evans, he's close to Jefferson. Uh, that doesn't mean that he has like personal feelings that we necessarily know. It means that proximity-wise, he is close to him. He has spent his life around him. What were Evans' feelings about Jefferson? We have no idea. But I think we have to allow for the entire range of human emotion, everything from he could have absolutely abhorred Jefferson and seen only uh, his captor to the possibility that genuine affection could have existed between the two. And yet, no matter what the feelings were, we have to recognize that it existed within this gross imbalance of power and this system whereby Evans had no ability to consent to the nature of the relationship one way or the other. And then you add to that the fact that he's negotiating this proximity to Jefferson with the rest of the enslaved community. It's just super complicated to think about what the personal relationships were like between people who were enslaved and the people who owned them. 
And not only that, Brandon, but the word resistance doesn't jump right into my mind when I'm thinking about Jupiter Evans, maybe because of his proximity to Jefferson, maybe because of what Jefferson trusts him with. And yet, when you look at what we do know about Jupiter Evans at the end of his life, there there does exist what I would consider an act of resistance. I mean, Jupiter Evans is a man who's only ever lived in Virginia. His life with the Jefferson family is the only world he's ever known and operated in. And yet when he finds himself to be very sick, he doesn't seek out a white doctor. What he doesn't said is he travels over 20 miles to seek out a traditional African healer. Healing of his ancestors of a place that he's never been, but that he knows he's from. If we consider that Evans knows about a traditional African healer who lives more than 20 miles away, that means that a lot of people also know about that traditional healer, which means that there is this thriving culture outside of the dominant Euro-American culture that Jefferson belongs to. It's a form of resistance through cultural persistence, right? I mean, here's Jupiter Evans, who's a man who's never seen Africa, and yet he holds within him like the memory of a homeland that was left far behind. So while Jefferson was up in Philadelphia, his uh, daughter, Martha Jefferson Randolph, and his son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, were living nearby Monticello at Belmont. And most of our evidence for the story comes from the, the letters that are written by Thomas Mann Randolph to Jefferson. And he talks about how he discovered that York was the individual that broke into his bedchamber. He says that he had observed York with a gun skulking about my plantation. And it is upon seeing York with a gun in his hand that Thomas Mann Randolph discovers the items that had been taken from, from Jefferson's bedchamber. I'd love to be able to tell you all how Thomas Jefferson responded to this incident. Unfortunately, we don't have any letters. In terms of any letters he sends back to Thomas Mann Randolph, he doesn't mention the incident. What I always ask myself when I'm considering a primary historic document is, who's doing the writing? And who are they writing to? And what are each person's motives? You know, Thomas Mann Randolph, I mean... He's Thomas Jefferson's son-in-law, but he's a very interesting man in his own right. He says that when he is at Monticello among the Jefferson family, he feels like, quote, the silly bird among the swans. He feels out of place. I mean, can you imagine being Thomas Jefferson's son-in-law? Like, that's, that's a lot. That's intense. This is a very complicated family dynamics, right? I've read these two letters quite a few times, and I feel like Thomas Mann Randolph's tone is interesting to me. I mean, it could be portrayed as there's been a break-in and things have been stolen and things like that, but he almost seems to downplay the incident. The end of both of these letters, he goes from telling this story into some really mundane kind of everyday information. At the bottom of one letter, he says, oh, and by the way, could you purchase some glass? And then in another, he recounts the weather. 
I also think there's something to Holly. He just says, you know, you had a gun. I wasn't sure if it was yours or not. He says, I'm not super familiar with all of your guns, basically. It makes me question if he is trying to give a perception of control over the situation. Like he's kind of writing to his father-in-law and saying, this thing happened and I know you're going to find out about it, but don't worry, I've got this. In terms of what happens to York... Unfortunately, the sources don't tell us. We know from records of other enslaved individuals the types of punishment that could have been possible. There's an enslaved person named James Hubbard who runs away from Monticello multiple times. And when he is captured and brought back, he is sold away from the plantation, as well as the instructions sent from Jefferson to having him, quote-unquote, flogged in the presence of his fellow nailery workers, as an example. We don't know what York's motives were, but it's interesting that he took a gun, I think, because if you study the plantation south, you know that there's plantation owners who are constantly fearful of uprisings and slave revolts. Monticello was a plantation. It was a place where almost 200 people lived at any one time, and the vast majority of those people would have been enslaved. And I've had people ask me before on tours, you know, why is there such a big lock there on Jefferson's door? And of course, the reality is, is that Jefferson is surrounded by people that he is forcibly enslaving, forcibly holding against their will. There was always the potential for violent uprising. And that is something that he thinks about. In Notes on the State of Virginia, he says, I tremble for the fate of my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice will not sleep forever. The most famous Jefferson quote on slavery, I think, is a letter he writes around the time of the Missouri Compromise in 1820, where he writes, quoting an old Roman proverb, he says that slavery is like holding the wolf by the ears. Uh, you don't like holding on, but you don't dare let go. Uh, and people are familiar with that quote, but they're not familiar often with the next sentence he writes, which is, justice is in one scale and self-preservation is in the other. In one sense, people read that as Jefferson's wealth, that Jefferson's lifestyle is tied to slavery, this institution. But in another sense, he he also could very well be referring to the idea that self-preservation is actually self-preservation, that without the institution of slavery, that there would be, uh, in essence, a, a race war. And that aspect of the plantation that aspect of what a plantation meant in Jefferson's time is hard for us to view today because we have this tendency to see the beauty of the mountaintop. There's a lot to this story that is hard to look at, but so necessary to understand who we are today. York, he's a young black man with a gun and he is treated a certain way by uh, people with power. If the echoes of that are not clear, then we're not paying attention. 
And if we want to understand how we are still struggling with race and equity and justice, the only way to understand that is to look at the histories of the past. There's so much that these stories show us about where we've come from and hopefully can teach us a little bit about where we might go. Brandon, I'm really glad we had the opportunity to have this conversation. And also, all thanks to Steve for helping to tell this story and giving us the opportunity and the platform to have these really important discussions. Yeah, I thank you, Holly. And thanks to Steve as well. The Monticello is a place where we can share these histories, good and bad. And we're grateful to all of our listeners, to all of our visitors, and to anybody who wants to learn a little bit more about the past. 